On February 4, 2010, the McStay family, 40-year-old Joseph, his wife, Summer, 43, and their sons Gianni, 4, and Joseph Jr., 3, vanished without a trace from their home in Fallbrook, California. Joseph's company, Earth Inspired Products, built custom-made decorative fountains and sold them online. Summer, a licensed real estate agent, stayed home and took care of the boys. The family had just bought a new home on Avocado Vista Lane in Fallbrook, a suburb north of San Diego with rolling hills, lots of green space, and a small town vibe. It's known as the avocado capital of the world, and they even have an avocado festival that draws big crowds. How could a family of four disappear from the face of the earth? Everyone from multiple law enforcement agencies, including police in San Diego and San Bernardino, the FBI and ICE, to private investigators, reporters, and amateur online sleuths, was obsessed with the case. Everyone had a theory, from a run-in with the cartel to Summer killing Joseph and changing her name. For a long time, law enforcement appeared to believe the narrative that suggested the family had probably crossed the border into Mexico to start a new life. But the skeletal remains found in the Mojave Desert told a different story. The McStays and their killer were a lot closer to home. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. At the time they went missing, Joseph and Summer appeared to be living the American dream. Family and friends said the couple were deeply in love and committed to their family and to building Joseph's business. Because there were so many wild theories that emerged in the time following the family's disappearance, Joseph's father, Patrick McStay, wrote a book called McStay's Taken Too Soon in an attempt to correct some of what he claimed was misinformation about the family. According to Patrick, Joseph was incredibly passionate about his art creating huge and elaborate waterfalls, and the business was thriving. Some of Joseph's sculptures sold for as much as $200,000. Joseph had been married once before, in his early 20s, and according to his family, he was heartbroken when that marriage ended. He and his first wife, Heather, had a son named Jonah, and Joseph and Heather shared custody of him after she filed for divorce in the late 90s. In 2004, a mutual friend named MacGyver McCarver introduced Joseph to Summer, and it seemed to be love at first sight. The couple had two sons. Gianni was born in 2005, followed by Joseph Jr. less than two years later, and they were married in a small ceremony in Orange County. Friends and family described Summer as hugely protective of her children. She was feisty and opinionated. And after the couple disappeared, some of them pored over every detail of their relationship to see if there was something they missed. Joseph's mother, Susan, told CNN that she noticed that Summer did not seem to be particularly close to her family. In fact, none of the family had come to the wedding. She referred to Summer as very jealous when it came to Joseph. But for the most part, friends and family say the couple were completely in love. They had bought their dream home just three months before they disappeared and had been busy doing renovations. Investigators pieced together a timeline of Thursday, February 4th, which appeared to begin as an average day. That morning, Joseph was making calls while Summer was online making plans for Joseph Jr.'s birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese on February 6th. 
At 9.41 a.m., Summer called her sister, Tracy. According to Tracy, they talked about Summer driving up to see her and her new baby in San Bernardino County later in the week. At 10.39 a.m., Patrick said he called his son and that they had a perfectly normal work-related conversation about some granite Joseph was installing. According to Patrick, Joseph said he was on his way to deposit a $14,000 check into the bank. Then, he had a business lunch planned with Charles Chase Merritt, a freelance welder who worked for the company helping to build water features. They were set to meet at the Chick-fil-A in Rancho Cucamonga at noon. The last known conversation that anyone had with Summer was at 2.11 p.m. when a homeopathic company called to let her know they could not find a medicine that she had been looking for called anger. The person who talked to Summer told police they remembered that conversation well, probably because of the medication's unusual name. That was the last time that anyone other than her immediate family and the killer spoke to Summer. At 2.36 p.m. that afternoon, Summer's credit card was used at a Ross store in Vista, a town north of Fallbrook, reportedly to buy beach bags, infant pajamas, and a jacket. But this piece of information has proved difficult to verify. Family members who've looked at the receipt, which totaled $66, reportedly said they did not believe the name looked like either Joseph or Summer's signature. There was also no surveillance video, so police couldn't confirm who actually made the transaction. The computer at home was used to search children's toys on Craigslist at 425. Then, there was a missed call made from Summer's phone to Joseph's phone, and then a text sent from Summer's phone to Joseph's phone at 505, but the text was not received until 547. Joseph's father thinks this time lapse happened because Joseph's phone was turned off. Police say that Joseph's phone pinged in Fallbrook, near his house, during this time. Patrick, who detailed the timeline of that afternoon in his book, wrote that he called Joseph, whom he spoke to almost every day, several times after their initial call that morning, but got no reply. At 7.47 p.m., a neighbor's video surveillance captured the family's SUV leaving the home, but the camera was angled downward, so only the sides and the back of the vehicle were visible. It was impossible to see who was inside. On February 9th, Joseph's business partner, Daniel Cavanaugh, reached out to Patrick to let him know that he had not heard from Joseph. On February 10th, one of Joseph's other colleagues reached out to the San Diego Sheriff's Department to request a welfare check on the family. A deputy came to the house, but got no answer at the door. And, since they saw, according to the responding officer's report, quote, no signs of foul play, end quote, they left. Joseph's younger brother Michael came by the house and met Chase there. Patrick wrote in his book that Chase showed Michael a bag of dog food in the shed that had been torn open for their two dogs a German shepherd named Bear, and the new puppy, Digger. Now, the fact that the food was out and the water had been left partially on so the dog's water bowls would continue to refill made Chase believe, he told Michael, that the family had left on a last-minute trip. On February 15th, Michael came back to the house with Chase. This time, he crawled through an unlocked window. There was still no sign of his brother, sister-in-law, and nephews. But what he did find inside the house was disturbing eggs had been left to rot on the counter. Popcorn was scattered on the sofa. It looked like someone had been making breakfast and had to leave in a hurry. Police were called again. This time, the deputy who came to the house immediately recognized that something was wrong. The case was turned over to the homicide division.
Patrick said that after the detectives left the house that day, they locked the doors, but they didn't put up crime scene tape or limit access to the scene. Four days later, investigators came back to the home with search warrants, but in that time, several people could, and did, access the house. Joseph's mother, Susan Blake, told CNN that she asked the San Diego Sheriff's Department for permission to enter the home, and they gave it to her. Desperate to find any clue that could help the family, she and her son Michael entered the house. She was allowed to clean the kitchen, and Michael told CNN that he was allowed by police to take items including his brother's computer and SD card which he downloaded information from and put back before police issued the warrant. Patrick McStay was devastated by this development. He thought that vital evidence could have been destroyed. On February 15th, police also issued a BOLO, be on the lookout, alert for the McStay family in their truck, a white Zuzu trooper. Within a few hours, they got a hit. The vehicle had been impounded from a parking lot at a shopping center in San Isidro, just north of the Mexican border, at around 11 p.m. on February 8th. The Azuzu was parked there between 5 and 5.30 on that day and towed after several hours, according to authorities. This led investigators to wonder, could the family have parked their car there and gone over the border? This theory gained traction when it was revealed that someone had done a search on the family's computer on January 28th, related to documentation needed to get children into Mexico. But Joseph's father pointed out that people regularly use that computer, so anyone who visited the home could have potentially done that search. Joseph sometimes did business with vendors over the border, but his family shot down the suggestion that he would have taken his family there after dark. He would have gone during the day, they argued, in his green Dodge pickup truck that he used for work, the one that was still sitting in the garage. Summer's mother, Blanche Aranda, told local news outlets that her daughter did not like Mexico. She told KFMB, quote, I can't imagine where they are. I have no ideas. Where would they go? End quote. Summer's family also said that she would never leave either the dogs, who she considered her other children, or her prescription sunglasses behind. The family had no known connections with drug cartels, and neither Joseph nor Summer had any known enemies. The police seemed to have zero suspects. Joseph's friend, MacGyver, went into the couple's master bedroom on the 17th. According to Patrick, he was shocked by what he found. Clothes and shoes were strewn everywhere, almost, he believed, as if the house had been ransacked. San Diego County Sheriff's Office Homicide Division had jurisdiction over the case, and the detective in charge of the investigation, Lieutenant Brugos, told the local newspaper, the North County Times, that there was, quote, no law against adults being missing, end quote. Then, police got what they believe could be a huge break in the case. Video released by deputies shows images of a group of people who seem to resemble the McStays walking hand-in-hand into Mexico through a pedestrian gate. The video was dated at around 7 p.m. on February 8th, the same night the car was impounded. I've looked at this video multiple times. It was dark, the video is grainy, and the people can only be seen from the back. It's really impossible to identify anyone. But this did lead many people to speculate that the family may have disappeared voluntarily. At this point in the case, a lot of people came out of the woodwork and contacted the family offering to help. According to Patrick, there was one guy who worked for NPR Radio who offered to help with the search. He claimed he had information via a source at T-Mobile that Summer and Joseph's cell phones had last pinged in an area 
that was miles away from their house. But this was later confirmed by the San Diego police to be false. Another investigator convinced Michael that he had found his brother, sister-in-law, and nephews in Costa Rica and was working with E-Network to show the family live on air. Tragically, this also turned out to be a fraud. Yet another person wrote an entire book laying out a theory that the family had moved to South America. He wrote, quote, I followed every verified sighting of the family from Merida, Mexico to Tamarindo, Costa Rica. It seemed that I was always just one step behind finding the family. I explored all the possible theories. Summer killed Joey, Joey left Summer. The four of them were on the run somewhere in South America, end quote. Chase Merritt also talked to the media about the problems he said he saw in Joseph and Summer's marriage. Joseph had been battling a mysterious illness at the time he disappeared, which according to his family caused multiple symptoms, including vertigo. Chase suggested that Summer could have been poisoning Joseph. The mystery around Summer deepened when it was revealed that she had changed her name at one point and given her age to many people as three years younger than it actually was. Also, emails retrieved from the McStay family computer showed she sent Joseph angry emails about Jonah, his son from a previous relationship. At this point, reading about the case, I feel so sorry for Summer. I put myself in her place. I can't imagine every email I've ever sent in anger being poured over by a forensic team. I mean, aside from the fact that my Google searches alone would probably get me sent to a padded room, there's just the creepiness of pouring over the most intimate details of her life without her being there to defend herself. In a case like this, it's inevitable, but it's, it's very sad. Over the years, investigators received thousands of reported sightings of the family. One was sent by a missionary who believed that he saw the family on March 30th, almost two months after they went missing, in a Walmart store in Merida, Mexico. But all of the sightings eventually led to dead ends. Despite all the theories and well-meaning people leaving tips, the bottom line was there was no record of Joseph or Summer or the kids ever leaving the country. Their passports had never been used. And you have to ask, would they really have risked an illegal border crossing or gotten fake passports made? And if they did, what would the purpose have been? Joseph's business was making money, and the couple had $100,000 sitting in the bank untouched. Also, their credit cards and bank accounts hadn't been used since the day they went missing. They had just moved into a new house they were spending tons of money on renovating. None of it made any sense. Still, on April 9, 2013, Investigators with the San Diego Sheriff's Department announced that they believe the McStays left for Mexico voluntarily. A few months later, on November 11th, a man named John Bluth was riding his motorcycle off-road in the desert west of the 15 freeway near Victorville. He saw something that looked like bone. It turned out to be a human skull. In November 2013, months after San Diego police had said they believed the McStays left town voluntarily, an off-road motorcyclist called 911 to report finding what he believed to be a human bone. How can I help you? Hi, I'm out here on a motorcycle up behind the, the dump, and it kind of looks like a human skull. After that, the remote patch of sand quickly became a crime scene. A few days later, San Bernardino County Sheriff Coroner's officials announced that the four bodies had been found. DNA testing revealed that this was Joseph, Summer, Joey Jr., and Gianni McStay. 
Detectives found some other things in the shallow grave as well. A three pound rusty sledgehammer, a child's pants, and a diaper. After the discovery of skeletal remains, the McStay's mysterious disappearance was now officially a murder investigation. The San Bernardino Sheriff's Department took over the case. Investigators believed that the killer had bludgeoned the family to death using the rusty sledgehammer. Forensic testing revealed that every member of the family had been hit multiple times. They had suffered multiple bone fractures to the head, extremities, and torso, according to the San Bernardino Sun. This whole time, they had been buried in the desert. There was no border crossing. The author who wrote the book suggesting the family decamped to South America started offering refunds on Amazon. He wrote, quote, It appeared that all the verified sightings of the family in South America were not accurate at all, end quote. He added that no one should buy his book. Now the investigation was taking a different direction, one much closer to home. Law enforcement in San Bernardino were searching for a motive and following the money trail, which led them straight to Charles Chase Merritt. Joseph had been working with Chase, an experienced welder, for a few years. Their business model was that Joseph would design the custom product and Chase would manufacture and ship it. According to Patrick, Chase told Joseph that he had been through some hard times. As a good-hearted and generous person who cared about others, this made Joseph want to help Chase. Chase lived with his common-law wife and five children. Joseph helped them all out financially. But the truth was that Chase had a felony criminal record and had been to prison. According to court records, Chase was convicted in 2001 of felony burglary. He admitted to stealing $32,000 worth of welding and drilling equipment from San Gabriel Valley Ornamental Ironworks in Monrovia, California. He had a long rap sheet that included arrests for burglary, theft, receiving stolen property, and criminal trespass. Now, we always talk about the importance of doing a criminal background check, but honestly, in my experience as a private investigator and an investigative journalist covering true crime, I say, always look at a person's civil court record. I know character can't be found in a database, but it can give you an idea of whether or not a person takes responsibility for their actions. Even if they're for small dollar amounts, multiple unpaid small claims court judgments or child support claims are huge red flags. After the McStays disappeared, Chase went off the radar. He moved several times, and in August 2010, his phone number appeared to be disconnected. But bizarrely, he was still reaching out to the media in multiple interviews. In an interview with CNN, he said that he was most definitely the last person that Joseph saw. A lot of commenters pointed out that this was kind of a strange statement to make because the only person who would know that definitely would be the killer. Chase said he got a call from Joseph's phone at 8.28 p.m., which would have been shortly after the family truck was seen on the surveillance video pulling out of the driveway. Chase said that at that time, he was watching a movie with his girlfriend. He said he didn't pick up the phone because he didn't want to get caught up in a long conversation. In 2013, Chase spoke to the Daily Mail. He said he met Joseph on the day he disappeared for the planned lunch. They sat down for an hour and a half to talk about a huge business deal we had going on in Saudi Arabia. He said, quote, he was so excited. We had the Saudi Arabian project and a few other things going on. The business had never been so good and we were looking forward to the future. He did nothing to suggest there was anything wrong or untoward, end quote. He said that he spoke to Joseph two or three times while he was driving home and that the last call ended at around 6 p.m. 
He said, quote, When you talk to Joseph, it takes about half an hour, so I thought I'd catch up with him in the morning. I didn't answer that call, and I regret it to this day, end quote. He said police had asked him to take a lie detector test. Chase said he refused at first after talking to an attorney, but later he agreed to take the polygraph. He said that the detectives told him after the test that there were a couple of inconsistencies. He said, quote, that was just them trying to trick me into saying something. I didn't hear any more about it after that, end quote. In fact, Chase doubled down on his theory that Summer could have had something to do with Joseph's death. He said he planned to write a tell-all memoir about the problems in the couple's relationship called Afraid of the Light. He claimed that at the time of the family's disappearance, Joseph was afraid of Summer and had told Chase he should stop eating food his wife made for him at home. Sadly, according to Patrick McStay's book, he and his family had issues during this time. It's not uncommon for families to get into conflict after a murder. It's a life-shattering event that has tragic consequences that can go on for years or even decades. Patrick said he got into conflicts with everyone, his former wife, Sharon, his son, Michael, and the San Diego Sheriff's Department. After becoming frustrated with the police investigation, Patrick decided to do his own detective work from his home in Texas. He enlisted the help of a private investigator, and since he had previously been part owner of Joseph's business, began going through thousands of emails from his son's computer. Over the years, he shared information with law enforcement, but he believed the police only seemed to be interested in information that supported their theory that the family had gone to Mexico. For example, Patrick passed on one of Summer's emails related to Rosetta Stone language software, and Lieutenant Dougal released the email to a local news station. The case made national headlines. It was the subject of an investigation discovery show disappeared, vanished with Beth Holloway, America's Most Wanted, and many others. According to Patrick, the police, in his opinion, ignored evidence of fraud that could have been crucial to the case. On February 8th, he said that Joseph's email account received a message stating that the mailing address for one of his credit cards had been changed. As they built their case, the prosecution alleged that the motive was money. But still, Joseph's father seemed confused about why Chase would kill the one person who helped him so much. Patrick McStay told local news station CBS 8, quote, what does Chase have to gain with Joey gone? Chase isn't going to get the company, end quote. But red car cases aren't about killing someone to gain something. Often they're about trying not to lose everything. It's a very different mindset and understanding the underlying desperation that drives these personality types, right under their nice, calm exterior, is crucial to catching them. Chase also told the media that he had nothing to gain from Joseph's death, and said he and Joseph had a great working relationship. But the company QuickBooks accounting records told a different story. Prosecutors presented evidence at trial that suggested right after the family disappeared, Chase created a new vendor in the software program and named it Charles Merritt. Then, he started writing multiple checks from the business account to himself and cashing them, starting on February 5th, 2010. The checks were backdated to February 4th, according to investigators, and Chase told them that Joseph had handed them to him during their meeting. On one day, he allegedly wrote five checks to himself, totaling $15,358. Then, between the 5th and the 8th of February, Chase wrote checks totaling $21,858.
A San Bernardino County Sheriff's detective testified that on February 9, 2010, someone called the QuickBooks Customer Service Department from Chase's cell phone saying they were Joseph McStay and asking that the entire account be deleted. In his book, Patrick asks why the San Diego police did not bring outside agencies to examine the banking records sooner. This is why red-collar experts say that in these type of cases when fraud is suspected, it is so crucial to bring in fraud experts and make them a part of the murder investigation from the beginning. I don't like to Monday morning quarterback the police department, but I do ask myself, what if, after realizing they may be dealing with potential identity theft, they treated the murder case like a fraud case and put more emphasis on following the money from the beginning? They may have identified Chase as a suspect much sooner. In November 2014, over a year after the bodies were found, Chase was arrested and charged with the McStay family murders. Police called the murders cold and callous, but there was no comment on a motive. Michael McStay said at a press conference, quote, Joseph was a great brother, a great father. He would have done anything to protect those boys in summer. He tried to help Chase and provide work for this guy, and this is how he was repaid, end quote. But Chase's trial would be delayed by numerous self-generated dramas. First, he demanded a speedy trial because he said he had congestive heart failure and would not live more than four months. Then, he insisted on representing himself, but of course had conflicts with all of his lawyers, going through five in total. The trial finally began in 2019 and was streamed live on the website Law & Crime. San Bernardino County Deputy District Attorney Britt Imes called the killings senseless. And prosecutors acknowledged that their case was built on circumstantial evidence. For instance, they couldn't tell exactly where and when the family had been killed. Imes told jurors during his closing arguments, quote, you can have a murder case without answering those questions. Something happened in that house. What exactly happened in that house? Only one person knows, the killer, end quote. Whatever happened, the horrors that the McStay family endured that day were unimaginable. And when prosecutors laid out the evidence of what they believed had occurred, things got even worse. All four family members died from blunt force trauma, probably inflicted by the sledgehammer. Police investigators testified that the evidence showed Joseph suffered a broken leg, broken rib, and at least four blows to his head. The killer wrapped an electrical cord around Joseph's neck and wrapped his body in what they thought may be a futon cover, according to the San Diego Union-Tribune, but the material had deteriorated too much to be sure. Summer suffered multiple facial and skull wounds. Gianni was struck in the head at least seven times. FBI Special Agent Kevin Bowles testified that Chase's cell phone was used near the area where the bodies were ultimately found. San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputies said they believe that Summer may have been raped before she was killed, according to a court document. It read, quote, Investigators believe Summer was raped at the time as her pants were in the grave near her head and her panties were in the pants as if they were pulled off together, end quote. Also, according to the San Bernardino Sun, investigators found evidence to suggest that Summer's bra may have been cut off. Prosecutors presented the evidence of financial fraud they also presented more physical evidence. Chase told investigators he had never driven the Isuzu, but his DNA was later found on the abandoned vehicle steering wheel and gear shift, authorities testified. There was the security camera video from a neighbor, which a prosecution witness was able to use 3D animation on to show that in their opinion, the truck on the video was Chase's. 
FBI Special Agent Bowles testified that on February 6, 2010, two days after the McStay family went missing, five calls made by Chase pinged to a cell phone tower in Victorville, near the graves where the family's remains were found in November 2013. In January 2020, Chase was found guilty of the quadruple murders and sentenced to death. Chase's defense attorney told reporters outside the courthouse that the decision was a miscarriage of justice and he believes Chase is innocent. Chase never got to publish his tell-all about the McStay's relationship. He was arrested shortly before it was due to be published. Susan Blake spoke out in the courtroom. She called Chase a despicable, evil monster. She said, quote, How could you beat two precious little babies? How scared were they, Chase? Crying for mommy and daddy? Chase, you are a low-life baby killer, end quote. Thinking about what might have happened to the McStays has kept me up on a lot of long nights. I can't imagine the horror that the family must have suffered. During the trial, evidence emerged that Joseph and Chase's relationship had been deteriorating. Joseph was unhappy with the quality of Chase's work, and also, Chase owed Joseph a lot of money. So, I think that at lunch, Joseph confronted Chase about the theft. Then, I think that Chase hit him over the head with what he had in his car. Whatever happened with Joseph dead, Chase would have known that Summer, who he slandered in so many media interviews, would never have accepted him taking control of the business. She would have fought for answers. So, in order to get the money out of the accounts, he had to make the whole family disappear. We may never know what really happened in that house, but we do know that a sledgehammer takes a lot of time to kill. Did the parents see their children die? Were the children watching terrified as their parents were murdered in front of them? That missed call that was made from Joseph's cell phone at 8.28 that night also troubles me. According to law enforcement, it pinged from the cell tower closest to Joseph's home in Fallbrook. So if it was Chase calling from Joseph's phone to help establish an alibi, then it seems that he could not have been, as he claimed, at home watching a movie with his girlfriend. But in the end, what I'm left with with this case is, what a waste of human life, literally for nothing. The money that Chase stole, he lost almost immediately by gambling it away. By June 2010, the business that Joseph had loved so much and run so successfully was falling apart and the company accounts were frozen. Patrick wrote in his book that Michael found a newspaper dated February 5th behind the rear wheel of the green work truck. It's also terrifying to think about the fact that Chase could have been coming and going from the house for several days. So he killed a family of four, probably one by one, by bludgeoning them over the head with a sledgehammer, buried them in a shallow grave, and then went back to their house to make sure the dogs had plenty of food and water. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Oh.